iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, who is favourites for the Premier League title after the great game between Manchester City and Liverpool? We'll talk about tactical fouling at the Etihad as well. Elsewhere, Spurs beat Aston Villa by four goals to nil. But what does that mean for Steven Gerrard's side? We'll talk about Arsenal as well and that race for the top four. Manchester United totally out of it. Why do we still even talk about them and what's going on at the bottom after defeat for Burnley at Norwich? All that and more on the game. Hello again. Welcome back to the game podcast. I'm Hugh Wilson. I mean, what a weekend it is. I'm not even going to finish my own name. It was so bloody brilliant. <laughs> Alison Rudd is here. Tom Clark is here. And Paul Hurst joins us for the first part of the podcast where we have to discuss, of course, we have to begin with events at the Etihad. City 2, Liverpool 2. It means Manchester City stay one point ahead. Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp hugging at the end. That's why it's not a big rivalry, not to go back too far to last week's podcast, but there you had it in a in a microcosm. Um, I think people were so distracted by what a great game it was, especially for the neutrals, that actually the context of it, people didn't care. I mean, you went back to the Sky Studio at the end and they're all sort of like, yeah, well, you know, still a point. And it was, and it, there was no real gravitas in what it meant for the title race. And I actually think it did have a hugely significant meaning for the title race. But we'll come on to that. Paul, you were there. How great a game was it? It was, it was an amazing game. You know, I, I took a, a lie down after it was that, um, <laughs> that, that um, frenetic, and you know the, you know that early goal from City as well really got the crowd going and made it even more of a spectacle. Um, sort of took the nerves out of it. I, I don't think either. Neither team showed any kind of nervousness, which is which is which um, is uh, you know indicative of how good they are. They are, in my opinion, the best two teams in Europe, and they just both went for it, didn't they? And that was the most pleasing aspect of it. There was no caginess; they didn't stand off each other. They just went for it, and it was a a really good exhibition of attacking football. And it goes to show why those two are so far ahead of the, the rest of the pack. How, what do you think it showed us about the two teams other than how, how good they are? I mean, versus one another. Um, is there an element now that, that Manchester City are, are growing? They've been pushed a little bit further by Liverpool and are able to hold them at arm's length? Or if you're a Liverpool fan, did you think this match showed that even when City are playing brilliantly well and you're not playing particularly great, you've still got their number? I think Liverpool will be will be the happier of the two uh, teams because of the fact that they, I said, they, you know, they played, what, six out of ten mm. uh, overall for their performance, even though um, there were some moments of brilliance. But, you know, City were, for me, the, the better team, but they just couldn't finish them off. Um I know we've had this kind of false nine debate regarding City all season, but 
And in some ways, when they do play false nine, they are a better team. They are more, you know, there's more options, there's more movement, etc. But there's so many times yesterday where a ball uh, was put across the box and you would just, be, you know, if, if Haaland was there or Harry Kane was there, it'd be a goal, wouldn't it? So, you know, in, and City wouldn't have been able to kill Liverpool off in the first half. So I think it also shows that, you know, there are still, there is still that that minor weakness in the City team that, that needs addressing um, in the summer, and you know, if you know, if they do address it by bringing Haaland in, then you know, God help the rest of the uh, rest of the Premier League. You know, will make them, uh, uh, you know, make them almost invincible. I'd say so. Yeah, but I, I think Liverpool will, you know, will still will still be happy that they're actually in the race rather than four points behind. Hurstie, you touched on false nine and tactics there. You know, mm-hmm. Hugh and lots of others in the media have been critical of Guardiola sometimes in big games for his tactics. I actually thought that, as you say, had they had a striker on the pitch, it would have been perfect, but I actually thought his tactics were really good, particularly you know, going to Gabriel Jesus, playing on the right and seeming seemingly managed to, for large part, counter... Liverpool's fullback threat. What what did you think of Pep's tactics? Yeah, I think that's that's exactly why he picked Gabriel um, he, because he he's he's a real grafter. You know, he's he he works just as hard as um, you know people like Bernardo Silva in, and Kevin De Bruyne in that team. So I thought that was a good decision. He's also he's he's um, suspended for the Atletico Madrid match, so it also made sense from that point of view. I thought it was also. Um, a good move to put Bernardo. Bernardo played a little deeper on uh, yesterday. Yeah. Mm. He, they sort of played four-two-three-one, and he was alongside Rodri. And getting him, getting him on the ball as as early as possible is a is a great move because he's just um, you know uh, he's he's a fantastic player, very creative, very industrious, and doesn't mind. I know he's very small and uh, very short, but he, he can put in a you know, a tactical foul, et cetera, and pull a shirt and, and stop a counter-attack, et cetera, as well. So he, I think he's really good in that position. I, I don't like to see him on the wing. I, I think central midfield is his, is his best area. So, yeah, there was no no left-field tactics, no no Gundogan on the right wing, no mm-hmm. Laporta left-back. So, <laughs> and, and I think it, it worked, didn't it? And putting forward and back in the team as well, I thought that was a um, was a good move as well. So I think he got it pretty much spot on, Pep. Before you go, Hursty, our big argument in about 10 minutes' time is going to be who are the favourites mm-hmm. for the Premier League. Um, <laughs> it, was a bit, it was a bit of a missed opportunity, I think, from City. But how do you feel about it? Is one point enough for them to be champions? Did that draw in many ways put them then in pole position? I think it, it just it just keeps them ahead, obviously. Um, and I, but I still think that both teams will drop points uh, before the end of the season. Um, Liverpool got some tough fixtures, haven't they? They got they got United to come, and I know United is terrible at the moment, but um, you know they, they're still capable of pulling off a. Well, uh, you know, well, I don't know about with, that. With zero conviction whatsoever, <laughs> I'm thinking about I'm previous Man United who actually, you know, tried to play football, etc. Um, but um, they got Spurs as well. Haven't they? Spurs are yeah. a good team. That's yeah, they're better than Man United by a long way. So they'll they'll give them a go. Yeah, and City they play West Ham away before last season. They had a really good record at West Ham, but I don't know. I just quite fancy West Ham to give them a good game. And they've got um, they got Villa as well. Leeds away. Um, but uh, you know, so I, I think both teams will drop points. But I think you know, City will probably just edge it by a you know by a point or two. Oh, we will see, and we'll argue about that very shortly. Paul Hurst, thanks for joining us on the game <laughs> podcast. Cheers, guys. Thanks. Right then, to your two opinions on it, Alison. We know you're slightly biased um, on this. What did you make of the game? I'm still feeling slightly queasy because I ate a lot of chocolate, which is how I cope with uh, <laughs> big games where lots riding on them. 
Yeah, I bought I bought bought my niece a a, a chocolate bunny and it melted slightly so I thought I'll have to eat it so I had the whole thing <laughs> so, so it, was a, it was a strange game because it was it was captivating but when you're feeling slightly oh my goodness I can't cope with the the pressure and the intensity of this and I'm feeling sick as well what have I done anyway um I'm sure a lot of fans felt like that, actually. That seems to be the mood of the nation, was if you were a neutral, wow, what fun. If you cared about either team, your stomach churned. Um, weirdly, often I, I often love Tony Cascarino on a Monday, often don't agree with him, but he, he, he I agree with Tony Cascarino today. It was a game where you found yourself thinking, oh, why has he done that? Why have they done that? Oh, that's interesting. And... Um, it was it was like offering the world a template into their insight. We often think that the two managers involved are just su- such elite coaches. Can us mere mortals understand what's going on? And you felt they were sort of letting us peek behind the, the curtain a little bit. And I did think, you know, as he, as he'd chosen uh, Jesus because he's got, he's got a good record at home against Liverpool. Seems a bizarre sort of random sort of superstitious thing to do but it was all about exploiting Liverpool's high line and it was fascinating that Liverpool didn't adapt knowing that's what was going on and they stuck to their guns maintained the high line and City kept on exploiting it it was it was fascinating and uh Cascarino he agreed with me two standout individuals were Kevin De Bruyne and Matip Liverpool, I think, would have lost this game, but for, for Matip's performance in the first half, when Liverpool were jittery, making more mistakes than normal, but maybe that's not so unusual when you're playing against um, the team that are favourites to win the title. And I just thought he was Im- absolutely immense, so calm, very. I mean, you know, there's something about a good central defender, isn't there? That and everyone else is going slightly berserk. They they. <sighs> They control the game and make the right decisions crucially. Loved his performance. Kevin De Bruyne, very, you know, the way he steps up when it matters is absolutely incredible. So um, I don't think anyone would argue that a draw, although I kind of feel if, you know, if they're going to keep drawing 2-2, can't they just sort of put that into the system where we don't have to go through the mill? Because, <laughs> because like I said, I was feeling a bit queasy through it. But it, it was... It was fascinating. I, I think I'm going to be the person that would have disagreed with that statement had you got to the end of it. You said, I don't think anyone would disagree before you diverged. And I think you're going to, you were going to say that a draw was a fair result. Yeah, it doesn't need saying, does it? City deserved to win. Absolutely City deserved to win. No, they were at home. Absolutely they were at home. City they were at home and Liverpool did enough to make them They had them two chances. Wobble. They scored twice. Uh, Liverpool were... Fantastic in front of goal. And had they had the number of chances that Man City had, they would have scored seven goals because they would have been clinical. City weren't clinical, but they definitely deserved to win the game. In fact, they should be delighted because I actually think that was one of their best performances against Liverpool. Liverpool found it so hard to play for so many long periods of the game. And the only time that they really had the ball was when City had a little bit of a breather and went, oh, we can't just keep bopping it around here. And we can't just keep sprinting in behind. We can't just keep exposing Trent Alexander-Arnold. We can't just, you know, they got into the box. They had over twice as many touches inside the opposition penalty area. They missed, as Hursty pointed out, a top draw striker in it. And look, Pep can argue all he wants that they don't need one. 
they definitely deserve to win that game. And, and this is my overarching feeling listening to the reaction was that because it was such a great game and because it left us in exactly the same state as when we went into it, people weren't taking much from the game other mm -hmm. than what a treat that was. And I was like, whoa, I've just watched Man City miss a huge opportunity to go four points clear because they dominated the game. For me, in terms of maybe not clear-cut chances, but that one extra pass that they needed to have the clear-cut chance is where they let themselves down. They had they had Maris's chance at the end of the game. Rodri should have nodded across for John Stones to have a tap-in. Like they, In the first half, they could have scored three or four easily and been out of sight at that point. It was a great game. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I don't think a draw was a fair result. Allow me to be a mediator for once. <laughs> for once, that'd be a nice role for me to take on. Hugh, you make an interesting point about the draw and the general perception because insight into kind of newspaper workings, when you work on a Sunday and there's loads of loads of action going on and we're producing the game and loads of all, all of our football coverage, we editors are kind of sat there and going, the, the last thing you want is a draw. You want a kind of win-loss definitive mm. storyline. And this was one of the few times where we're kind of discussing what's going to be the front cover of the game supplement, what we're going to put top of the website. And we're like, draw's great because it's still on. We keep going. The drama keeps going. So you're absolutely right in that sense. It was, it was a strange occasion like that. I would just quibble with your choice of the word deserve. City should have won, but that doesn't mean they deserve to win. Yeah, think, because finishing chances is part of the game. Exactly. And they, and, but also, that's a negative, staying in the game is part of the game and part of the battle. And Liverpool did that very well. I think when you consider the goals that they scored to score the goal those two goals at those moments is incredibly impressive because any other few other teams would be able to kind of rise to produce those goals which were very Liverpool goals particularly the first and they both kind of came slightly out of nowhere and you kind of pan to Pep Guardiola on the touchline he's going for God's sake we've fallen for it we've just switched off for that one second and they've got us but Liverpool still have to produce that moment of quick passing, pressing, magic and counter-attacking to score those goals. So I would just quibble with your choice of the word deserve. City should have won the game, but I think a draw can be considered fair because it was that kind of back and forth and Liverpool deserve credit for that by not being overawed, by being the, you know, the less good team. Ah, if you're going to go through sliding doors moments, I mean, Edison could very easily have... <laughs> scored an own goal he was nah, totally given relaxed the ball to he shot knew what he was doing don't be slagging off my mate Edison come on <laughs> he knew what he was doing he knew what he was doing one one interesting thing I wanted to ask both of you about is and Tony Cascarino has written about this this morning both um, in the paper and online was Liverpool's kind of slightly more cynical tactics should we say and now we've all heard Jurgen Klopp in the past complaining cheekily about opposition teams kicking his players and stopping them and it wasn't very fair and we didn't get any help from the ref well he definitely got some help from the ref yesterday didn't he I mean that was the most you know I, I said this on Twitter that was the most cynical I've ever seen a Jurgen Klopp Liverpool team and I don't mind it because it's fair play do what you need to do but I did think it was quite telling that you know they resorted to that and there was those moments when Van Dijk cleaned uh, De Bruyne out on a counter-attack but it was interesting De Bruyne's reaction. It wasn't what the reaction would have been had it been a Newcastle defender or a Burnley defender, i.e. jump up, furious, ref, book him. Right. You know, he kind of just high-fived Dan Dyke and said, well played, mate, fair enough, I would have done the same to you. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, do you want to well, I'm, I'm, I'm actually surprised more teams don't do it against City because all Pep teams have been tactical fouling teams. Absolutely. Uh, this is the point more teams can't get away with it 
against City because oh. of the perception of the two sides. The perception, if you are, uh, I don't know, if you're Norwich and you, you go out there and you keep fouling Manchester City is that you're trying to stop them. You're destroying the game. You're destroying mm. the spectacle. You're stopping this brilliant team from scoring amazing goals because you just keep kicking them. And that's the only way you're going to get a result. Mm. Whereas when you're a great team like Liverpool, the perception is not the only way that we can get a result here today is by fouling them. It's totally different. You know, you've got Pep Guardiola on the side saying, look, if you if you stop them from fouling us, we're going to win. You're deciding the result by letting them get away with it. You can't say that against Liverpool. You can't say, we'd be winning 5-0 if they weren't fouling us. You can't say that yeah. because you probably wouldn't be. Um, and so it, they, they, get, they get away with it in a game like that. And it's just not going to be a deciding factor. I also think the referees aren't as keen to allow their officiating to decide a, a match of that magnitude. I, I, you know, I, th I think it's a bit like the end of the F1, you know, it's a bit <laughs> <laughs> uh, last season. Keep in that. the drama. Yeah, exactly. Keep the drama. Let people enjoy it. Mm. Don't let them walk off like they did at yeah. the end of the F1, complaining about the officials. But you're right as well, and this is a point Tony makes as well, that this is not exclusive to Liverpool. And as you say, Pep's teams have always done it. Sir Alex Ferguson's Manchester United team were not afraid to kick the crap out of an opposition team as they did very successfully with Arsenal. Arsenal's invincibles mm. and also Wenger's early teams. I was looking at some stats earlier and discussing it with James in the office in 2001-2002 season when they won the title having lost to Man United for a couple of seasons. They had 11 red cards in all competitions and you know, he was saying, having spoken to Martin Keown, that Keown just said, yeah, we just went into tackles a bit harder because we were like, we are not going to lose this. Mourinho's teams they, it always happens I just think there's it. this raised an interesting point and Tony discussed it with me that as you say Hugh should we now not allow the Burnleys the Newcastles the Norwiches a bit of a let off because we see them all, all the big dogs do it and when they have to it's about winning Football's about perception I say it all the time football is about perception how we react to it how people um, react to the game on the sidelines and on the pitch as well in many regards you know certain players get a, a bad rap a bad reputation and they are treated differently by officials mm. um, once they do soon by the way Anthony Gordon will have a reputation as a diver and he's not going to be getting any of these decisions because he's thrown himself all over the place but then who had that before Deli Alley yeah. and you know he, he, he used to get loads of decisions then yeah. he stopped because he got the public persona of someone that goes down easily yeah. and then it was now it's Raheem Sterling and it was Ashley Young and perception is huge yeah. um, and like I say the perception of teams lower down the, the table is that the only way they can stop Man City is, is by fouling them or doing something like yeah, but that it's, but it's it's posh fouling isn't it and mm. it's there was nothing it's, posh about the Fabinho foul. That wasn't no, posh. No, that wasn't absolutely. But, but I'm talking in general terms about tactical fouling being a part of your your approach to a match. If you're someone like City, that they, they do it very cleverly. So they they remain the right side of the law. I don't think they do. I don't think they do it any clever. Fernandinho, let's talk about I'm not about talking him. about Case this match. Point. I'm talking no, about yeah, general I'm, I'm talking terms. about generally. Over the course of the last five years, a bit longer, Fernandinho has been pretty key to their tactical fouling. And people watch game after game after game and, be, and say, well, how on earth is Fernandinho getting away with it? If Fernandinho was... Lee's Milu for Norwich he wouldn't get away with it if he just kept tripping people up as they ran through central midfield towards the penalty box he wouldn't get away with it because he would be perceived to be stopping 
better sides from scoring loads of goals. Fernandinho got away with it because no one thought Man City were going to lose the game. It wasn't going to affect things if he didn't get a yellow card after yellow card after yellow card. But he, you know, and then what did Pep do? And this is another reason why they want five subs. It's just like, get a few yellows and then we'll take you all off and we'll bring someone else on and they'll get a yellow and we'll be fine. We'll keep tactical fouling our way through the season. Obviously, that's not how they win titles, but it does help them. Yeah, but it's but it's done cleverly. It's not just about perception. It is about the How level, you, the level of tackle, the when they do it, where they fouling. do it on the pitch. Yeah. But those who players does it? create that perception that you're talking about, Hugh. Fernandinho created that by his mannerisms on the pitch, by his relationship with the referee. You know, all these things do influence the referee and the decision. I mean, Alison, you're a referee and a Liverpool fan. Fabinho, come on, that's a red card, right? No, absolutely. It wasn't dangerous. Okay, it's Thiago, second yellow. I'm surprised he didn't get a second yet. <laughs> I couldn't believe Very it. Diplomatic. I couldn't believe the first one. She says with a wry grin. <laughs> Unbelievable. But it made for a great game. And if you're a neutral, you are very happy about how the game went because I thought it was one of those, you know, old cliche, great advert for English football in the Premier League, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, it, but it was. I thought it was an absolutely brilliant game. They'll play again at the weekend in the FA Cup as well. Hopefully that's another treat. I'm sure Pep Guardiola plays everyone that didn't play this weekend anyway. Um, and that maybe affects things. In terms of the Premier League, though, they do stay a point ahead. We need to discuss, I think, who are the favourites now because it was meant to be a title decider. Didn't go one way or the other. The gap stays at one point, as I mentioned. In terms of the remaining games, for me, the big ones for Manchester City are trips to Wolves, West Ham and Leeds, actually, I think are their trickiest ties. Liverpool do host Wolves and Spurs, which I think makes a difference because those are their tougher games. Everton and Manchester United, obviously, big fixtures for Liverpool I don't see those two teams getting anywhere near this Liverpool side so Wolves and Spurs Wolves if they have a great day they can defend pretty well Spurs are obviously in very good form who do you see winning the title now? Uh, Liverpool I said Liverpool a while ago and also yeah, but without it, wanting to be that guy just... I've said for a while that I didn't think Manchester City in those games that you've highlighted Hugh they were excellent that's the best I've seen them against all season against Liverpool but in those games when I've watched them Hugh those ones you just picked out Leeds, Wolves, West Ham I don't think they have been as good mm. and I think the kind of striker central attacking uh, position is a problem in those games as it was against Crystal Palace so I actually think they'll drop points in those games um, you know as Hursty said I think both teams will continue to drop points but I think you're right to pick out the it's the on paper versus reality thing and on paper everyone looks at it and goes oh my god Liverpool have got Tottenham and they've got Manchester United and they'll be well up for it and all that kind of stuff but I just think in reality those City games are trickier in in reality and that that, that is what it'll come down to and I think Liverpool will just sneak it I agree well there's, there's just there's just no point in 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 clawing back the 14 point gap unless you're going to win the title <laughs> <laughs> says and spoken like a true novelist <laughs> exactly let's use should we use the n-word no we won't yeah. use the narrative word but Boom. it feels like also there is the psychology of liverpool are still hunting down city and i do feel that means there's more pressure on city whether they yeah, like I it or not i think it suits it suits the two actually weirdly i think not, not that Liverpool would have minded if they'd won, <laughs> but do you know what I mean. In a in a strange way, that kind of battling performance, being seen as the less good team in, on the day, but still be in it, and then go into those games against Everton, Manchester United, Tottenham, 
and be under, you know, the pressures on City, I think. And Pep alluded to that in his quotes, didn't he? So, and I just think that suits Liverpool more than it suits City. When they're both, they've both also got other competitions that they're going for. City have, for me, pretty much two elite players in every position except for centre forward. And I actually think the game of the weekend underlined their major fragility, which is they leave points and results out there. Hmm. You know, you guys know it's pretty much one of my bugbears with Manchester City. They they do. I watch so many of their games and people go, oh, they got a point and they carried on or they they should win all of these games. Hmm. They should, it should, as you mentioned earlier, have won that game. Hmm. Had they bought a serious centre forward, if they had one in their side, they would have won that game. And that's their fragility. You know, they're going to play Atletico this week and you think the way that they dominated the first leg, well, they, they're not going to get knocked out against Atletico. And you sit there and you go, well, mm-hmm. if they put 11 players behind the ball, mm. they don't have that figurehead. They don't have someone that's going to create a goal from nothing. It was a moment of magic. Moments of magic score them goals a lot of the time. Instead, instead of that regulation pattern of play that they used to have when there was a forward in the box. You know if you put it across the city. All those balls that Matip cut out. No, seriously though. You're starting to sound like a Man City fan, not a United fan. (laughs) Manchester City got into those positions and I kept saying, why haven't they flashed the ball across the face of the goal? As you'd expect, on the byline, whip it in there why are they cutting them back to the mm. and that's because no one no had made the run there. no one's in there no one's made a run into the six yard box and you're like had someone done that there's a tap in there but no one gets close enough to get those tap ins because there's no one thinking like a centre forward and as great as they are with false nines there's a reason everyone has a striker I mean there is a reason for that you know I keep trying to put myself in Pep Guardiola's shoes like there must be a reason why they play not one but occasionally two false nines and De Bruyne and Foden aren't they great when they score these goals and look he's reinvented football and then games like this you go oh that's why everyone buys a striker for 100 million quid and everyone wants a goal scorer because those are the games that they win you and um, so you've changed so what you're coming to is to say that now you've changed your mind and you agree with me and Alison yeah I do I, 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 I do I have changed my mind I absolutely have changed my mind because the you know the game against Spurs I think I said it you don't dominate a team as good as City with the best squad I think I've ever seen in football the most technically gifted squad as Edison, Edison showed us at the weekend in footballing history should not lose matches ever that they dominate hmm. in my opinion against anyone if, if City dominate a game even against Liverpool I think they should win it hmm. I honestly think they should win it and that's the difference for me and I think there is that you can call it a fragility a weakness whatever you want but when it's tough for them that's why they don't go home with three points and that's the only reason more for us to discuss and we'll in fact mention Manchester United a little bit later on we're going to stay towards the top of the table though Um, the race for the top four is I'd love to say hotting up (laughs) it's not um, I mean it is if you're a Spurs fan but it's not generally speaking because they're the only team in the race if you like that won this weekend They, they went to Aston Villa Four goals were scored, a hat-trick for Hyung min Son. It means Spurs are fourth after four straight wins, four straight defeats for Villa as well, uh, who afterwards, the Villa boss Steven Gerrard said, were magnificent in the first half. And I think they, they were. They had so many chances they just couldn't take and were punished by that Harry Kane-Son combo once again. And Alison, you were there, so tell us, what were your reflections? Oh, it was it was uh, absolutely a absolutely remarkable match really strange I don't think I've been to one like it actually and at the end um, managers sit down and often the first questions 
you know, the obvious question. And it's usually, so manager X, uh, how do you sum that up? So Gerard was asked, how do you sum that up? And he just, he just sat there and stared at everyone. And there was this long pregnant pause. And I did think, is he actually going to say anything? He's so stunned and he didn't know how to, how to analyze it, how to sum it up because for 40 minutes, Villa played like the best team in the world, seriously. I mean, Coutinho was prompting them, every single Villa player to play like they've never played before. There were back heels, dribbles, quick thinking, clever free, clever free kick routines. Uh, they were bubbling away and forcing Lloris to make great saves and there were blocks and there were poor misses and poor finishing, but the build-up play and the imagination was was phenomenal. But there's this really weird thing happening, happening at Aston Villa, which is they've only got one half of football in them. And they, <laughs> they when you're up against a front line like Spurs currently have, um, that's not enough. You, you can't you can't play one half of football, and so that yeah, they didn't get the goal they 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 should have got the goals they should have got from some amazing play, and they just ran out of puff yet again. Often with Villa, it's the other way around. They start badly, and Gerard gives them um, a rollicking at half-time, and they come out and do something better in the second half. They might not win, but they improve. For some reason, this is a big problem they've got. They have, they have 45 minutes in them, and that's it. I was going to say, that was because that was what we praised Gerard for, wasn't he, when he came in, those kind of turnarounds at Villa Park where they got points from losing positions. Is it is it the player's quality that maybe he's now had time to implement his full, more fully-fledged style, if you like, and it's rather than it being Steven Gerrard giving a rollicking team talk, this is actually a fully-formed plan that they can't fulfil? Or is it is it something more in the ether? Well, I don't... Well, worryingly for Villa, I'm not sure Steven Gerrard knows what it is. Mm. Um, I could be very mean and say he's come from a division in Scotland where it's just not as demanding and he's not prepared the players properly for mm. the rigours of what you get over 90 minutes in the Premier League because that's what it looks like. It is It is quite strange. You know, they're, they're not all over 30. They're, I mean, there's a nice mixture of age and experience in that team. It's just... I mean, I think um, after previous matches, Gerard has said for some reason... His his team seems to have to work harder to get the rewards than mm. anyone else seems to get. So if they score, you feel like, well, that took a lot out of them. Whereas some, like Spurs did, score quite effortlessly, um, and that's peculiar. It's maybe it's over, maybe because he's a new manager come th come in without a pre season, they're having to overthink it. There's too much going on in their heads, and they're having to. They're not a natural team yet, um, and, and, and but they're they're just not pacing themselves. It's it is. I've not seen anything quite like it actually. I mean, they're not in danger of going down, fortunately, but it is strange that even the teams at the bottom of the table they're pacing themselves properly. It's it is it is a conundrum, and it probably speaks to Gerard's lack of experience as a manager in this division. Yeah, I mean, on Villa, I, I 
there's part of me that thinks he believes if you if you really have that spell where you score a couple of goals you can manage the game mm. I don't think there's a plan for managing the game if you don't get those goals um, but they're not good defensively they're not good enough defensively and they waste a lot of chances and there's a part of me that says if he just makes it their brand to be a really intense football team a bit like R- Ralph Hasenhüttl has tried to do with Southampton um, of course Marcelo Bielsa did at, at Leeds that actually they would be a better team if they just said well, we're going to be a sprawling team that gets all over you tries to have that intense way of scoring a few goals you know just get the ball into the box get shots off because that's a lot that's how they play in those periods where they're being really good at aggressively attacking team and that's where they score their goals I still think they don't have natural goal scorers apart from Ings who's not played that much or that well um but actually, it doesn't go far back in the team. It sort of stops in the midfield. And then the defenders are all playing a different style of football, which is like we just sit back behind the mm. ball and we're really safe and we can't, we don't affect the game aggressively. I don't think the defence is aggressive enough. Um, and I actually think they would just be a better side if they had that identity all the way through the team. It's very much like the forward third is one identity and the defence is another style of football. And when the ball goes into their defensive third, it just they, they're a different Aston Villa defending than they are attacking. I just he needs to get that throughout all of their play. I think I think that's the best Villa that one that we saw where they were having all those chances. Yeah. But then you are going to run the players into the ground. That's fine. That happens at other clubs. You rotate. You you plan for a squad that is going to have to be that intense in every single match, and you rotate the team throughout the season. I actually think he, they could play like that. They they probably should play like that. The one where they all get behind the ball, I don't. They're not good enough. No, they're not good enough. But there's Allison's talking about stamina, and you're talking about you know fitness and pressing and being high intensity. That takes time, doesn't it? Mm. It took Marcelo Bielsa time at Leeds, for example. Um, you could argue Ralph Hasenhüttl still still trying to implement that style effectively, uh, given Southampton's results of late. But I I also wonder with the kind of Gerrard appointment, and we talked about it at the time. We all said, I think, you know, Dean Smith. Will they be in any different position? Doesn't look like they probably will, I don't think. Um, this summer will be very interesting, won't it, in terms of... I, they've already spent quite a lot of money. I wonder whether Gerard will be expecting, even demanding, that they spend quite a lot of money again. I'm, by all accounts, they're able to. They've got the financial backing and support to do so. But you guys are talking about implementing a playing style that requires probably more hours on the training ground and also more technically proficient players. So... I wouldn't be surprised to see quite a lot of money spent at Villa Park if the idea of the Gerrard project is to take them up to that kind of West Ham, Leicester level of pushing for the European places. I think they can do it. I think they can do it next season or the season after. Steven Gerrard, jury's still out. But a young manager, as Alison pointed out, who, who's finding his way a little bit. Uh, on Tottenham Hotspur, though, more goals um, they're, t- they're turning into one of the strongest teams in the Premier League over the past few weeks it's been a remarkable few weeks for them they were 8th and they are now 4th I know Arsenal have a game in hand 3 points behind them but for many people if they keep this up I mean they're a shoe in to be in the Champions League spots I think Antonio Conte is turning them into contenders well, it looks that way doesn't it they, they are I <laughs> I, I I sort of said yes. I think I said yes in my piece. I don't know if I did. I don't know if I dared to, really. They seem to have grit. I never thought I'd say that sentence. Spurs seem to have grit. They rode the storm. They took their chances. They played with freedom. 
They were clinical when they needed to be, didn't mind being overrun when they were overrun, had faith in their goalkeeper. Uh, it was it was a proper grown-up, let's build on our momentum type of performance, which I think is summed up when you, when you watch Conte in action. So there's something weird going on. Uh, he he honestly does celebrate each goal more deliriously than any manager in the universe, right? I mean, he just does. He just does. And 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 the fan that means the fans, even though he's new to the club and he he was a Chelsea manager, they sing his name more than any other club sing the manager's name in the universe. So that's strange. He looks like he's completely decided. I now love Spurs. I can make this work. His whole demeanour is one of having had all that flaky flip-flopping. I don't know if I want to say. He looks like he's committed now. Everyone's very relieved. Everyone's bought into the uh, the methodology he has, which is very tough on the players. It's uh, he's exuberant and amazing. And then he, afterwards, he looks he looks like he looked like he'd lost four nil afterwards. <laughs> Didn't look happy. Said it's very important. You know, the other results went his way. Of course they did. But you know, there's so much more he wants from the team. I mean, this is proper grown-up management of a team that has floated around promising much and never delivering. So it, I mean, you know, people say, don't they, the best marriages are the ones where you come through difficulty at the start and then you're solid and then you grow. It seems to be this way with Spurs. It was a difficult start for them and Conte and it's that come through the hard part. And if he does get them Champions League football, you'd have to say maybe next season is promising for them and they would have to have a big summer as well actually they would yeah but um but Rodrigo Benton Kerr Dan Kulisevsky I mean he's got a, in those two of course Christian Romero came in um from Serie A before but I think if he wants to go to the board and buy more players from Serie A I think the three signings that have come in from Italy are doing very very well have changed the team and I think he, he can have that argument now you know the one that was threatening to walk away well he can now go up to the board and say Let's do some more of this and we're going to get better. So, the, um, the only problem with that argument, though, is if he gets Champions League with what he's got already, they'll go, well, that's that's fine. We just want some nice Champions League nights in our big, beautiful stadium. That's fine, Antonio. We don't want any more than that. Obviously, obviously they won't. Obviously, they well, want... They I think want, you're spot on. They want the world, <laughs> but the reality is that they're... A, no, I don't think the club hierarchy does. No. I think Antonio Conte does. Yeah, he does, but they're, yeah. they're miles off City and Liverpool, as we've discussed before, and as Chelsea prove. So that, that's, the, that's the difficulty, isn't it? That'll, I think... You're right, Alison, that they've come through that, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's another little wobble to come at some point. Well, they are Spurs. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Well, for their North London rivals, who are also going for a place in the Champions League, as I mentioned, Arsenal... Back-to-back defeats. Um, A loss to Brighton at the Emirates, two goals to one. Huge credit to Brighton. We're not going to talk about them in detail, but um, they got their first win in eight games. As James Gearbrunt points out, though, in today's Times, Mikel Arteta needs to take some responsibility for how that result came about because without left-back Kieran Tierney, he preferred moving Granite Xhaka out of midfield to cover instead of playing the, albeit struggling at the moment, Nuno Tavares. And with Tom Thomas Partey already missing from central midfield when the whole system needed a tweak and in the end it didn't really work. How big a mistake was it from Arteta to do that? Oh, Mikel, why are you doing this to me? I can still remember, Hugh. It was Christmas. I was sat at home with my family. Our family dog, Ralph, was sat in front of the fire. It was cold outside and we were recording a podcast and you said to me, who's the manager of the season? And I said, Mikel Arteta. And you all laughed. (laughs) And I've thought about it since and I thought, yes, I can't wait for producer John to clip that up at the end of the season. I'm going to look like a genius. (laughs) And he's determined to scupper me. (laughs) Mikel, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? Um... Yeah, James's analysis, as always, is very interesting and really, really on point. That that position in midfield was where Brighton, you know, they got their goals as well. The kind of pullback mm. to Trossard coming in on the edge of the box, which was a lovely, lovely, lovely finish, goal, yeah. lovely finish. One of those kind of really talented players, I always think, whenever mm. I watch Trossard. I'm I mate, I, with all due respect to Brighton, every time I watch yeah. him, I'm like... He, he he reeks of Champions League squad yeah, player. Just like he's exactly, good enough. Yeah. He is. A you Diego know, he, Jota. Maybe, exactly. Someone. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Probably yeah. at Man United next. He's, year. he's captain of the undead team, though. Is he? Yeah. What Players who look undead. <laughs> <laughs> Too many bags under his eyes. Uh, he has saying? that look where he doesn't look yeah. quite alive. He needs a bit blusher on. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> um, well, there may be lots to discuss. Maybe next time. I'm <laughs> players who need a bit of makeup. But uh, yes, coming back to the point about Arsenal, it does feel like. As a team and as a manager, they're getting a bit twitchy and a bit fidgety and overthinking it. Um, you know, we talked about Pep Guardiola. Mm. Perhaps he's got a bit of that in him as well, Arteta. As you say, forced upon him by the likes of Tierney being out um, and Thomas Partey as well, who has become increasingly influential. But this is where all the things that we talked about and praise them for, the young team, the pressing, the enthusiasm, the exuberance, just doesn't... Yeah, that's this is where you fall down. And... It's going to be really hard for them now because that's the other thing that happens with young, youthful teams managed by young, young managers is that they don't have that grit that Alisson is talking about Tottenham having now. And so when it comes to a run-in and they've both got to play each other, Arsenal fans are going to start getting jittery and worried again. And look, I, I'm still going to back them for fourth because I have done all season and I desperately want that acclaim of calling Mikel Arteta really early. But... Um, if I were an Arsenal fan, as I am being temporarily um, in this sense, I would start being a bit worried by these kind of performances as much as the results. But it's, it's it, I think this is fascinating because what counts more for a team is it that you maintain your shape? And, and Arsenal are famously 4-2-3-1. Three, three, mm. it's, it's what they are. 
they were that before Arteta when they played were playing well you knew you were going to get two holding midfielders with Arsenal yeah the world's the world's spinning on its axis mm-hmm. that, that's what happens that's what you do and so if you've got injuries surely you think well okay we haven't got the first choice personnel throughout the team but if we maintain the shape we're all used to we can get through yeah. it and yet Arteta is either over tinkering or is nervous or feels it's his job to do more than just say well I'll just yeah. move pieces around as long as the shape's okay yeah. I don't know and I was on, on tube on my way to Villa and with, uh, sat on the same tube that um, fans were going to watch Arsenal and they were reading out the team sheet and the fans were going oh yeah yeah he doesn't like Tafaris does he mm. like it's, and that's not healthy when no. everyone knows a manager just doesn't like a particular player who has a role to play when yeah. there's injuries. That's the point of him, isn't it? You don't buy players and stick them around the club saying, oh, you're the one that's not liked. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah, I think you and I had a, a heated debate, shall we say, earlier in the season, Alison, about Arsenal kind of plan A and a lack of a plan B at times and Arteta not being able to change it mid-game. I think this is perhaps another example of that where he's just not confident enough in his squad He's now confident in his kind of plan A and his starting 11. But when he doesn't have that, it, he really struggles because he, he says things like, I don't like Tavares, so I'm not going to play him. And that's his, that is his failing as a manager. But it's again, we've talked about Villa, we've talked about Tottenham. This is again another example of where Arsenal will need a, a big summer in some senses because that's how they again kick on because they should be able to be without Kieran Tierney and Thomas Partey and still perform to the level to get a result against Brighton at home. Good managers, good managers make everyone in the squad feel important. Yeah. They really do. And and Arteta's getting a reputation for falling out with players now. And look at Aubameyang. He's just he's just ripping it up at Barcelona. He is, Absolutely. but I, I still think that was... I remember Tom Roddy saying it on the podcast that he thought it will be a classic case of where it could be a good move for Arsenal, Aubameyang and Barcelona and that all those things can be true. I think you're right to raise it as a point of where he I, fell out with someone. I'm not saying it wasn't right for the club, but I just think it looks like Arteta does fall out yeah. with too many people. The, the best managers, what, part of what makes them great, great managers, and this is t- to answer your point about could he be manager of the season, is is who you have in reserve and how you make them feel when they, they're given their you know, occasional minute here, 10 minutes there, or a whole match because there's an injury crisis. If they come in feeling great about it, that's fantastic man management. I've been criticised for highlighting his lack of man management skills with the players that he's fallen out with. Um, He hasn't actually positively resolved any of those situations other than selling the players. And eventually he's going to want to keep one of these players or need to keep one of these players. You know, Bakai Saka, his contract's coming up. What if, you know, he stalls on it? What's he going to do then? Is he going to argue with one of the club's best players, one of the best up-and-coming youngsters in the world? No, he isn't. He has to start resolving some of these issues. And there must be these issues at every single football club. Anyway, by the by, they need to win games. Southampton away next, very tricky. Chelsea away, Man United at home, West Ham away, Leeds at home, Tottenham away. I mean... That's the season, basically, yeah. and it's tough. It, it looks very tough, and I'm starting to wonder that they're going to get blown away by Tottenham when it comes to that game. But I wanted to, Hugh, I wanted to ask you, as a Manchester United fan, and we'll come to their perils in a moment, but, you know, Arsenal and Tottenham, and we talk about this top four race, we thought those three teams were all considered to be in it. As a Manchester United fan looking on at the outside, would you rather have the Tottenham situation of world-class manager 
proven at the highest level with some world-class players, Harry Kane, Son, and you know, looking like a better transfer strategy, or young manager, lots of promise, lots of young players, and starting to get it together with an attractive style of football. Which would you rather you, have? You'd rather have Conte yeah. all day long. Yeah, of course. I'd rather have Conte with Norwich's squad. <laughs> no, to be perfectly honest, yeah, I mean, you've got a winning manager who knows how yeah. to how to win trophies, knows how to win big games. I know Arteta's won an FA Cup already, but um, no, I think you'd rather be in the Tottenham position, which is the chance to build on some very good players and an excellent manager than... Every, to be fair everyone at Arsenal has something to prove and obviously that can work in your favour but obviously they haven't done anything I would rather rather be Spurs fan right now yeah and I think they're going to be in the Champions League basically all of my predictions from the start of the season have changed this weekend <laughs> so now Tottenham are going to be in the Champions League Arsenal forget you and of course Liverpool are going to win the league so Manchester City you're off as well now I think we need to talk about uh, the team you just mentioned there my beloved Manchester United a couple of the other teams who supposedly want to be in the Champions League next season I'm not too sure that's the case Everton huge win for them beating Manchester United 1-0 at home Anthony Gordon's deflected winner enough to move Everton four points clear of the relegation zone any win is massive for them at the moment um, but as I said United supposedly trying to finish in the top four for a team that high up the table it's a huge win for them we're going to reflect on Manchester United I think first um, because we were talking about this a little bit earlier on Tom for me it's the lowest point since Alex Ferguson um, was appointed at the club so a, a long long time because we can now all officially come around to the idea that that dynasty that time is dead I mean it's dead it's not just lurking somewhere in the back room that we're going to bring out on a birthday party it's going to dance in the living room we're all going to you know smile about it. it it's it's gone okay it's gone it's not coming back they are not a top football team they might be sometime in the future but they are in a group of half a dozen teams who might be a great team in a decade and that's it they are a former great team yeah we can all accept it now yeah I'm glad you've come around to my opinion Hugh I've been saying it all season for about three seasons actually but but you make an interesting point about it now being for Manchester United fans because the other thing we were talking about at the start of the show is why do we still keep talking about Manchester United a lot of listeners will be sat there going yeah they've been crap for ages like I you know why are you still talking about them they're rubbish like so annoying talk about someone else but that that's the the strange thing about you know, being football journalists, being football fans, is there are a lot of Manchester United fans. One of my good friends is an Arsenal fan from the kind of 90s era and just loves how crap Man United are. Absolutely loves it. So likes, the enjoys, revels in it. <laughs> so that's part of it as well. But it is interesting because, and Alison, I'm sure, will agree, whether you're a reporter, an editor, a broadcaster, anything, you're like, what the hell do we talk about Manchester United now? What else is there to say? They've been rubbish for a while. They've tried loads of different managers. We know the hierarchy's rubbish. We know the, the the stadium's falling down. They're in a bad way. But it's kind of like, oh, so they've lost to Everton 1-0. I mean, Everton weren't even that good. They just showed a bit more fight and hunger. Mm. Alison can explain it journalistically per perfectly because she's a Liverpool fan. <laughs> no, no, seriously. So she would have. she's a Liverpool fan who is a journalist and she would have said and seen... All of those years when you still had to talk about Liverpool, but they weren't winning anything. They weren't winning the major titles regularly um, because you still have to talk about clubs with this many fans 
of this magnitude, despite the fact that there isn't much that interesting. I mean, they're still on, you know, they're still on Super Sunday, Manchester United. They'll probably still get those big TV games and everyone will sit there and say, I'd rather watch Spurs or, you know, mm. or I'd rather watch West Ham, you know, if they, they keep their great success up or Leicester City or whoever it might be over the next five years. Um, because Manchester United are just... They're now, in my opinion, as a radio show host, <laughs> they're a final hour team as opposed to a first hour team. And finally, we come to Manchester <laughs> exactly. United, who, exactly. are, who, ladies and gentlemen, are still crap. Yeah. It's but, a very, very deep well of Schadenfreude, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's what's going on here. The peak held by Manchester United. I mean, they were, they were everything that every club aspired to be. They had a really excellent but feared manager. They... They won not through luck and they didn't seem to win through money. It seemed to be through having great youth team. Everything was right about the club and they grew and they grew and they grew and you'd see Manchester United shirts all around the globe and it looked like it would go on forever. And the fact that its decline is so visible, so tangible, uh, there's nowhere to hide and as Tom said, you know, even the ground is crumbling. Everything about it feels like, you know, uh, the Roman Empire. It's 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 gone. But the Roman Empire we still talk about because they gave us our roads and our irrigation systems and so on. So they still have influence. <laughs> but they, it's it's utterly bizarre. And what I found completely strange, and almost unanalyzable is that I thought Man United played quite well for some of the first half. They looked like they were playing with a bit of freedom. And then the fact that they were unable to handle going behind, unable to summon the sort of team talk that Sean Dyche did for Burnley and say, come on, it's Everton. They, they are so fragile. Look at their results. Don't let the crowd bother you. I mean, come on. The crowd are only like this because they think they're going down. You're Manchester United. They don't have that collective ability to feel that they can bully anyone. I think their manager is so ridiculously laid back. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, he acts like someone who won the job in a, in a, in a lottery <laughs> and knows he's got salary paid for the next five years and doesn't seem to mind very much. There's no... So I don't get a sense of pride from him at all. He just wears his jumpers and shrugs and looks like it's nothing to do with me. I find that the whole thing has gone down so many levels of grandeur. It's it's utterly, almost inexplicable that they've got to this. And now you've got a case where they're considering who might be the next manager and they look like they might, you know, flip-flop themselves because they don't want to go there. So... Uh, bizarre. But what is also strange is if you look at the markings of the players that were given in the game on Monday, um, I always look at the markings. You can't, I don't think you can. Can you? Okay, please discuss with me. Can you give uh, Pickford, who had, I thought, one of the best games I've seen for a while. Pickford gets uh, an eight, a deserved eight. So I might have given him a nine, actually. But none of the Manchester United team get above a six and the forward line get fours and fives you, that's not right is it how can the goalkeeper get an eight and the forward line of the opposition get very very low marks they were clearly doing something to make Pickford man of the match Schadenfreude and maths from Alison Rodol in a small segment there. There's a lot for listeners to take in but no but you're, but you're right and I think there were little glimpses for example of Marcus Rashford not he's still a long way off the player who first burst onto the scene but there were little moments where you thought he's got a bit of sharpness and a bit of enthusiasm back but 
it's 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 a strange one because as I say, I do find myself running. I've, I've run out of things to say. They're done. <laughs> they are totally done. This squad. They're shell shocked. They've got PTSD. <laughs> they need to get out of there and seek help immediately. No, genuinely, yeah. because they cannot cope with the criticism, the pressure that has come with being in a terrible Manchester United team. The scrutiny, any of it. Look at Cristiano Ronaldo slapping a phone out of a kid's hand. Mm. That's not on brand, no. is it? I mean, that's it's not really like him. It seems um, none of them can cope with it. Yeah, they aren't. They've, they've. I mean, they're going to have identity crises. A lot of them. Yeah, you know, people who have been talked about as being great potential players in the future, if not the now, um, destined for greatness, trophies, the international caps, all of that, and everyone is saying you're rubbish mm. fans are saying you're terrible um, and even the pundits are saying no oh, they're not terrible but they're just not good enough for Manchester United yeah. and you're either stuck in a situation where that will continue because no one else is going to buy you or you're about to lose all of that and be sold and go to a club that is not as definitely not better than Manchester United and I don't know anyone that's going to move to a better team sideways at best yeah. for some of those players so what do you have at the end of it but maybe this this is the moment, Hugh. Maybe you mark the end because Alison referenced good marriages earlier. But when it comes to relationships that end, you only truly move on when you leave that behind. And if you're saying that finally we're no longer that dynasty, but it, that that's what it is. Because but that's and that's why I mentioned the kind of the media debate around them and how many times they're on TV and how many fans talk about mm. them. Which briefly to your point about Liverpool, the difference with now compared to the Liverpool team in the 80s and 90s and that kind of decline was that the way we consume news media is not as, you know, it's far more voracious yeah, and far yeah. more saturated than it was back then. You know, back then you'd have had Liverpool on telly every now and again, mm. a bit of a radio debate and in the papers. Now you've got those things times 10, well, TV well. opportunities endless mm. and, you know, fan sites, YouTube, social media, everything. And yet we're at this point now where it's still reflective of that era because it helps fans who don't like Manchester United laugh at them because you go ha you're no longer Fergie's Man United and then it, it also ham, you know it handicaps fans who like are super fans who want to go back to the glory days no there's just a business case for covering Manchester United I mean well, it's, yeah, as, it's as simple as that they are that popular a football team but the reality is in the context of what we're talking about um they aren't going to figure, which is the Premier League. That they're just not going to figure. They are a spare mm. part. You know, it doesn't matter the magnitude or popularity of the club in terms of the competition, the table, the twenty teams, the points, the wins, the law, the draws, the, the losses. Let's ban them from put, talking about them on the podcast then. Between <laughs> no, that and the end of the season. No, listen. But we, when we talk about them, we're talking about a team who is mid-table to Europa League standard. Yeah. Um, they're an interesting story because of their history but in terms of their current football team they aren't you know and it might be there are some good subplots in there because you've got Harry McGuire, you know England players mm -hmm. and, and players who cost a lot of money and some superstars and stuff like that but again in terms of the competition itself there are many teams with lesser known players who are better sides and you, you, you have to cover them because of the business case. People see Manchester United on the back of newspapers, hear about them on the radio and they, they want to listen because that's the team that they support. Many people support Manchester United. But again, in terms of the competition, the reason that I call this the end point for Manchester United is the second place to finish was the point that people went, ah, see, 
We are that sleeping giant. We can get back to winning the title. Here comes Rafa Varane and Cristiano Ronaldo and Jadon Sancho. They're going to take us to greatness. No, the club is not set up to do it. It's not run to do it. Nothing about them now is the Manchester United of old. They're not at the cutting edge. You can bring in great players if you want. They're not going to factor because all of the other factors are not are not good enough. Um, and that's it. I think people need to realise it. You know, this season should have shown them. They're, they're not good enough. And Eric Ten Hag's done an interview with Manchester United where he's told the club that it's a five. it will take five years for them to challenge. Five, so 2027, see you soon. I think he's been optimistic as well. Mm. Yeah, no, yeah. okay, thanks. Are you trying to just get at me there? Because no, I, just no. a little, just a no, little. No, 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 it doesn't get to me. Just I've been like, I've been. No, like, I wasn't. I just yeah. didn't even think he is being optimistic yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, yeah. The key, the key difference in the game was the effort levels and the desire of which Everton had far more. And match of the day picked it out, didn't they? But again, I don't, I don't take any of the, these current performances and this current squad to be what's about to happen next for Manchester United. I tweeted. Not after the Leicester game now's the time to give the under 23s experience these guys don't care loads of them are leaving they're not you saw again against Everton they're not interested I don't understand why a lot of them are out on the pitch like let them go and choose their new clubs put them on the bench bring them on if you need them for the last five minutes anyone who is going to be at the club in the future give them the opportunity to learn something give them the opportunity to show that they might be a great player for the club in the future like do something with the organisation that is going to be conducive to a positive future as opposed to I mean, why would Paul Pogba start games now mm. I don't get it like alright Wan Mata came on at the weekend and everyone was like why is Wan Mata coming on it's like well I think he probably wants to be at Man United I mean he's not got got it anymore but I think he likes being there I, I think he wants the club to do well so he what? came on Juan Mata's downfall after going to Manchester United is one of the saddest things about it all isn't he such a lovely lad yeah. He deserves far better. Yeah, I'll stop ranting about Man United. <laughs> uh, just finally, are Everton safe? Four points out of Burnley. Same same games played. Obviously, Burnley we're going to talk about next, so we might as well roll this all into one. Mm. Um, beaten at Norwich. I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. Two goals to nil. Um, after their win against Everton, especially, I thought they're, they're going to back this up. Norwich are the worst team in the league. Away from home, yes, but they, they have to win it. So I'm asking you really... Are Burnley now down slash are Everton now safe? Yes. Um, yeah, yes what? Yes, Everton is safe. <laughs> yeah, that was one of those where I answered it in my head before I even said, said it out loud. Uh, yes, Everton are safe and yes, Burnley are down. Um, I say that with a slight hint of anger because my Burnley boys, part-time fan that I am, like with Arsenal and lots of other teams, it seems, um, they were really frustrating and really poor they just didn't do the yeah it's a cliche didn't do the simple things well and but, but and also credit to Norwich they were the far better team who actually looked like they had a plan looked like looked far better going forward far co- more cohesive in attack um yeah it, and Burnley never really looked like scoring either there wasn't that kind of barrage of overlapping fullbacks and balls into the box it was it was really poor and i think yeah i've said it before being a bit unburnley like this season that again was another time when i was like who is this this isn't this isn't burnley what's going on and so that's what will cost them um and again everton it's a classic everton under frank lampard as well they're two kind of best performances i think at home to manchester city where they should have got a draw um and now at home to manchester united pressure off they'll pick up the points just about enough i wouldn't be surprised if they then went and lost the next two but they'll be just about okay i think I, I disagree, actually. I think this is the only game that 
you'd say Burnley were not the underdog and they didn't cope with that very well. And they did not expect Norwich to play with such freedom and good organisation. So that was a double whammy for them there. From now on, Dyche will get them up for the games that they they face. And I just feel if it's a straight fight between Dyche and Lampard... I'd put my. What are you money talking about? In a, bo- in, a boxing, in a boxing ring or <laughs> in, in a football contest? <laughs> in the velodrome. <laughs> I, no, I do. I do feel. I, I. I. It was a very peculiar day for results. I agree, but let's not forget Burnley did beat Everton, so that has to count for something. And I. I don't. I don't. I don't. Burnley are very good at having a terrible time or a terrible performance or it going wrong and bouncing back. And so they will. History has showed us that they will. And they, they're not going to be, you know, the favourites again. Everyone before the game against Norwich was saying, there's absolutely no way Burnley won't win this. Sometimes don't react well to that no. at all. So they'll, they, they, they'll clear that out of their heads. They'll realise what went wrong. Corne, Mr Sitter, who knows if that had gone in. They'll be fine. I think they'll get more points and I think Everton's run-in doesn't change just because they beat Manchester United. The, the, the games they have coming up remain difficult games. And you can't sit here and say how appalling an end of an era it has been for Manchester United and how appalling they were in that game and then claim that that means a lot for Everton. Everton were lucky to be playing a dreadful Manchester United. And they didn't... Yeah, but you know, dre- they, was, it was backs to the wall, even mm. though Man United weren't very good. What does that say about you? No, yeah, I know what you're saying, but I think every single game you win down at, at the bottom of the table is always a surprise and the opposition can't be playing at their best if they're above you in the table and you beat them pretty much. So I know what you're saying there, but I think it was I think the reason that Burnley didn't beat Norwich was the fact that Everton beat Manchester United. I actually thought they they didn't cope well with the right you 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 have to win. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I, I do. I, I, think, I, 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 I also think, think we should, again, the classic case of opposition fans pulling their hair out while they listen to us. Norwich were excellent. That's the best I've seen Norwich for a while, yeah, actually. I yeah. think they were really good. Um, not, and not just in a kind of gritty, determined, playing at home, getting three points. I think they played some really nice stuff. Yeah. Which you can do if you're at the point of no return. Often yeah. a team rediscovers something. But I just wonder whether those teams at the bottom will all do that and actually that in the next few weeks... The kind of relegate themselves in a strange way, if that makes any sense, you know. And I speak as a selfish editor who wants interesting storylines all the way to the end of the season. But I was partly sat there as well, going, "For God's sake, Norwich! I'd kind of written you off already. I really wanted Burnley v Everton all the way to the end of the season, and you've gone and spoiled it. For God's sake!" Yeah, we'll see with that relegation uh, battle. I think that's got many more twists and turns, thankfully, because they're all so bad. Um, Listen, before we go, there is one club's set of fans out there who are screaming, saying, well, what about us? You've slammed us recently. You've criticised us. You have torn us to shreds. And we haven't even got a mention. That could be literally anyone. On the the game podcast. Um, So I will mention you, Chelsea. Yes, Chelsea, um, who, of course, went to Southampton and won 6-0. Mainly I mention you because of the great article, once again, by Bill Edko, the game in numbers, 10-goal turnaround. Chelsea produced only the second case in top-flight history of a team conceding at least four goals at home and then scoring at least six away in consecutive games. Of course, they lost 4-1 at Brentford, 6-0 at Southampton and emulate Manchester United two matches either side of Christmas 
1977. Yes, many of you remember it well, I'm sure. Uh, 4-0 down against Nottingham Forest at Old Trafford and then beating Everton 6-2 at Goodison Park. I'm not going to spoil the rest of the article. Make sure you check it out. Bill Edgar's game in numbers. And Chelsea fans, we of course will talk about you in more detail after that second leg against Real Madrid. So stay tuned. I'm sure there'll be a lot of Chelsea chat on Thursday. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, thank you, Tom Clark, Alison Rudd and Paul Hurst, who was with us a little bit earlier on. Remember, make sure you're subscribed to The Times and The Sunday Times. If you sign up today, you'll get yourself a month three. As always, check it out at thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast too. So hit that like, hit that star, whatever you need to do and we will see you on Thursday. Take care. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 